Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. If you're a guest with us today, my name's Drew, and we're spending our Sundays moving through the book of Revelation, in particular chapters 2 and 3. So if you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under a seat nearby. And let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this day and this time and for your promise to speak through your word by your spirit. And so we pray that you would, and we pray that your word would accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish. Convince us of your grace. We pray that your truth would enter deep into our souls and bring conviction and comfort and transformation and joy and hope where needed. Pray this in Jesus' name, in the Spirit. Amen. Well, the good news of the gospel that Christians, we as Christians believe, is that God is for you in Christ. Jesus came and lived a sinless life uh, without fail at any moment, a life that we've all failed to live. He therefore was qualified to give his life as a sacrifice for us, to take the judgment that we deserve and to bear the weight of sin. And then he rose from the grave again and is enthroned as the reigning king and is the true Lord of all creation, and he reigns today. And so for all who trust in him, he pronounces over you, welcome, accepted, not guilty, mine forever. So that's the good news of the gospel. And here's what we've been seeing in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 as Jesus speaks to his churches. We've been seeing that Jesus can be for you and also have some things against you. And we receive that because he's our king. And we know the fact that the fact that Jesus has things against us, things that we love or do that we shouldn't, that need to be adjusted to his truth. Uh, because he has those, that doesn't call into question his care for us. It's actually an expression of his care for us. He, he loves us enough to find out what's wrong with us, heal what's broken in us, restore what is sick in us. And so we need to also believe then that as we hear in these messages to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, that Jesus has things against his churches and may have things against you and against us, that doesn't mean he's also not for you. And he's not for us. He loves us enough to address what's not working. And so that's what he does in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, in this message to the church in Pergamum. So let's read this together. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, every Christian and every church needs to think through how he or she and how this church relates to the broader culture in which it's found. The culture in which we live is filled with reflections of God's goodness. God made us to make culture, and there's so much of God's goodness reflected in the broader culture around us. Culture reflects people. People give expression in life, and it takes the form of cultural gifts and skills worked out for the serving the good of others. But since sin has reflected or has entered the world, culture no longer reflects God's goodness perfectly. Culture now is broken, and many aspects of it are now mixed and do not reflect God's glory. So, if a culture of a people reflects the people of that culture, then that means what's going on in our own hearts and lives are going to be reflected publicly in the culture we make around us. So, there's going to be things that please God and things that don't. And this means that every Christian in every local church will face a particular challenge by being situated in any particular culture. We'll be tempted to compromise. We'll be tempted to accommodate to the culture in ways that don't please God. We'll be tempted to think that we're faithful to Jesus while perhaps not even being aware at times that we are compromising and we're not faithful to Christ. So rather than being transformed to reflect Christ to our culture and be a light shining in the culture, we end up becoming dim and darkened and no longer shine in the culture. And so here's why we need to think about this, because we today are living in the midst of a radical change in our culture. And this radical change brings new and unique pressures to us as a local church and as Christians True followers of Jesus are certainly not the majority in America. And while many people still like the idea of Jesus, the one that we've been considering the past few weeks in Revelation 2 and 3, the real Jesus, would not be welcome in this culture as a whole. The world that the next generation is going to live in is very different than the world in which the previous generation lived the world in which children are born into, the culture in which children are born into today and in the next generation is going to be very different than the one that previous generations were born into here. And so there's shifts going on. Our culture is in the midst of a moral revolution, a complete shift in how we understand right and wrong. And it's not being moved from necessarily a pure culture to an impure one. America has always had deep sin issues and deep problems, and the church has always been tempted to compromise in many ways and has failed in many ways from the beginning of this nation and this culture. But there's changes happening that bring new pressures and new challenges and new shifts going on. So every Christian in every church will face challenges, will be compromised to compromise our convictions. We'll be tempted to compromise. Uh, And one reason why we'll be tempted in coming days is because, frankly, it's becoming more and more of an embarrassment to be a Christian. It's socially awkward at minimum to acknowledge that you are a Christian uh, to many people. And sometimes it's viewed as a threat to the good of society. So, what do we need today? 
Well, we need the same thing as that the church is needed every day and in every generation because no church has lived in a perfect culture. And that is we need Jesus to speak to us. We need to hear what Jesus says to his church. We need to hear what Jesus says to his people. And we can. There was a church 2,000 years ago or so that lived in a city called Pergamum in Asia. And they were in a culture that exerted a strong pressure to compromise. And so Jesus speaks to this church who has begun to bend and has begun to shift and adjust to their culture in ways that do not please Jesus. And they're committed, but they're also a compromised church. And so Jesus is speaking to a church in that kind of situation. And so this message to them is also his message to us. So what do we see here? Well, first, we see the commitment of most. So this church Jesus addresses, it seems like the majority are committed to him. His first words to this church are words of commendation. And in particular, most of the members here of this church have been holding fast to Christ month after month, year after year, in a challenging situation. That's, that's the point here. Jesus highlights their faithfulness in the particular challenging cultural moment in which they live. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And he repeats at the end of the verse that they live where Satan dwells. How would you like to live there? So Pergamum was a city of maybe somewhere between 100 and 200,000 people. If you walked into the city, it probably looked like a very interesting place to visit. But Jesus says Satan dwells there and his throne is set up there. Well, what does that mean? Well, it probably points to Satan's influence in this city. And in the culture of that city, this probably points to Pergamum's status as being the center of Roman government in Asia Minor, in the center of pagan religion in Asia Minor at the time. It was a place of political power, a place of religious power, and both of those powers were exerting pressure against the church and pressure toward Christians to adjust to those, to the culture. It was tremendous pressure at the time. So one way in which the political and religious pressure came together against Christians was through emperor worship. The religious culture was open to many gods and worshiping many gods and sacrificing to many various gods. And there were temples erected all over for them. And in particular, this included the worship of the emperor at the time. The citizens would sacrifice to Caesar and declare him as Lord. So this was a hard place for Christians to live because... Jesus requires full allegiance. We have to take him whole. We can't take a half Jesus. We can't take Jesus with one hand and take something else with another. He wants us to embrace him whole and change our lives from the inside out and in every moment of every day. And so what would it be like to live in a culture where the, the dominant expression of life is caught up in practices of worshiping an emperor? and offering sacrifices to an emperor, and saying Caesar is a Lord, not Jesus is Lord. What would you do? That's a strong pressure to conform. And so Jesus encourages this church in two ways. First, he encourages them with two words. He says, I know. I know where you live. So Jesus sees it. He's not surprised by it. He's aware that they are a suffering minority in the city. He knows that their life is hard. He knows that being a Christian in their city means that their social advancement will be stunted. He knows, which means he cares. They're not alone. They're not forgotten. They're on his heart. 
So Jesus is not surprised by anything going on then. He's not surprised by anything going on now. He's not surprised by legal decisions that are happening in our country. He's not surprised by a moral moral revolution that's in the process of unfolding in these decades. He's in charge, and he'll keep building his church. And so he encourages them. He says, I know what's going on. I see where you live. I'm aware. And second, he commends them. He says, you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. So he commends them for their faithfulness. Now, we only hear about Antipas here. We don't know much about him, but he was apparently the first martyr in Asia, the first Christian to die for his faith in this area in this time. So we know enough about the persecution of that time to know how this probably worked itself out. He was probably arrested for being a Christian or maybe a Christian leader as a threat to the society. And he was probably told simply to sacrifice to Caesar and say that Caesar is Lord. Just 30 seconds. Uh, say Jesus or Caesar is Lord and you'll be free. And he probably refused. And so he was executed because he couldn't say Caesar is Lord when Jesus is Lord. So Jesus knows their situation. Jesus knows your situation. Jesus knows the hardship that Christians go through in various countries where it's very hard to be a Christian. And he commends his people for their faithfulness. He sees your faithfulness. And he has a heart of commendation for you for holding fast to his name, just as these Christians did there. He sees your efforts to honor him in even the small moments in your heart when no one else will even know he's being honored. He sees those moments when you don't laugh at the joke because it would be giving visible expression of affirming something that Jesus hates. He sees you when you don't compromise in other small ways in your workplace. He sees your efforts to fight addiction. He commends you for your faithfulness to say that you're a Christian and identify with him in a context or in a conversation when you know that's going to take a a social hit for you. So we see the commendation of most here, but second, we also see the compromise of some. So this is a committed church, but it doesn't mean it's a perfect church. Verse 14 I have a few things against you, Jesus says. So Jesus is for them, but he has a few things against them. What are they? He says, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So Jesus is looking at their situation in the first century, and he makes a comparison between what they're going through and something that Israel went through in the past in their wilderness wanderings when they were rescued from Egypt and being brought to the land that God promised them. And so this situation with Balaam and Balak is recorded in Numbers, chapters 22 to 25, if you're interested in looking that up later. They were in the wilderness. The Moabites around them saw them as a threat to them. And so, Balak sent a prophet named Balaam to curse Israel, to bring down the judgment of God over Israel, but Balaam couldn't do it. When he went to curse them, he blessed them, and it kept happening over and over again. God was protecting Israel, and he wouldn't let them be cursed. He only brought them blessing. And so, after these failed attempts to curse Israel, Balaam came up with a new strategy. 
If they couldn't defeat them with military, if they couldn't pronounce a curse to bring an external judgment upon them, let's bring corruption from the inside. Let's destroy them from the inside out. So what Balaam did is he brought this idea to Balak to send women into the Israelite camp so that the men would sleep with them and then be caught up in their idolatry as well and sacrifice to idols. And the plan worked. They defeated Israel from the inside out in that sense. They knew how to get Israel to abandon their God and therefore come under his judgment. They knew that if they could cause Israel to become spiritually corrupt, then they'd fall apart from the inside. And Jesus says, what happened to Israel is happening to you, to this church in Pergamum. Jesus said that they were holding to a kind of teaching. They were holding to ideas that were very similar to the things that Israel was doing. They were holding to teaching that endorsed this kind of moral compromise. And we see two things that were going on. First, they were participating in idolatry. In Greek cities, there were often trade guilds that required members of these, these guilds to sacrifice to um, idols or join in these festivities and these feasts in temples that would be eating the food that was just sacrificed to an idol, this kind of idolatrous celebration and feast. And the Apostle Paul addressed this very question at different times in the New Testament. He said, it's fine to eat food sacrificed to idols if you find it in the marketplace. Uh, don't worry about that. But you don't go participating in the idolatrous feast. You're not going to eat this food sacrificed to idols in the temple as part of idolatrous celebration. And so this is probably what Jesus has in mind too. The people were participating in these civic feasts and they were participating then in idolatry. Well, why would they do that? They felt social pressure. If they didn't come to these feasts when they were invited, they'd miss out on career advancement. They wouldn't, if they didn't go to these feasts, they wouldn't be part of these trade guilds. Friends, neighbors, family were doing it. Didn't seem like a big deal. The second issue of compromise is sexual immorality, Jesus says. That also was a normal part of the culture at the time. And it was often connected to these kinds of idolatrous feasts. So to be clear, we need to make sure we know what the Bible means and what Jesus means by this phrase, sexual immorality. It shows up throughout the Bible, all across the pages. So we need to know what is included in that, what's meant by that phrase. And the way in which we understand that phrase of sexual immorality, a negative term, is by stepping back and understanding God's positive vision for sexuality. What is sexually moral? What is right? And we see that the Bible begins with a positive vision of sexuality. It's a gift from God. On the first pages of Scripture, we see that God created male, people male and female. He gives us the gift of living as engendered beings. And then the gift of marriage is given to bring one man and one woman together in this union, this comprehensive union of marriage and, and sexual expression is to take place within that bond and within that union. And when it does, the Lord pronounces over the whole thing, good, very good. Uh, this is a positive vision of God's affirmation for human sexuality. Marriage is the garden in which sexual activity is made to flourish. So that's the positive vision. And then anything outside of that positive vision is included in this term sexual immorality. Anything 
that's a, a, a sexual practice that happens before or outside of the marriage covenant of that context lands in the category of sexual immorality. So any kind of sexual activity outside of this marital covenant between a man and a woman is off limits. This is the fundamental vision of sexuality in the Bible, and it's the near unanimous historic Christian perspective on marriage and sexuality. So this is our starting point. If that's the positive vision and everything else that doesn't fit this, whether that's sexual activity before marriage or adultery or lust in front of a computer screen or homosexual activity, all of it is out of step with God's design for human flourishing. And that's why it falls into this category of sexual immorality in the Bible. And Jesus says that the problem with the church in Pergamum is that they were compromising on this. They lived in a culture like ours that did not embrace this design. The city of Pergamum did not believe in the God of the Bible and have this positive vision for sexuality and promote it. Uh, they, They held to the opposite of God's design for marriage. They did not have boundaries like that at all. They lived in a culture where sexual expression outside of marriage was celebrated and embraced, whether among the same gender or different gender and in any kind of context. Many of these people became Christians from Pergamum. And then they found out that Jesus has something to say about how they live, what they do with their bodies, what they think with their minds, what they feel with their hearts. And so they adjusted to this biblical vision of sexual flourishing. And they learned to submit their sexuality to Christ. But then, apparently what happened in this church is these Christians started to hear a different message. They heard some people saying that you could follow Jesus Christ and embrace and participate in the culture's view of sexuality. They heard this teaching that gave permission for Christians to go ahead and participate. Maybe they heard it put this way. Jesus gives you freedom to follow your heart's desire. Jesus knows you're only human. Jesus wouldn't make you live a life of hard self-denial and self-control and restraint. Jesus, maybe they heard it like this, Jesus cares about things that are way more important than sexuality. There are way more important things that, that he cares about than this little issue. But what does the real Jesus say? Well, apparently Jesus does think it's a big deal. He writes to this church that has been faithfully enduring. They've been doing a lot right. They've been committed. One brother's even lost his life for the sake of Christ. This is, this is a church worthy of commendation, committed to holding fast to Christ's name. But Jesus says to this church that they have a problem. As committed as they are, they're also compromising. They're trying to hold on to Jesus while also holding on to the values of the culture that Jesus does not endorse. So Jesus expects us to take all of him. He expects us to swallow the Bible whole. He expects us to give him every part of us, not just one part of us. So he doesn't just want our Sundays. He wants every day. He doesn't want our eyes just to be faithful to look at the Bible when we read it. He wants us to honor him with every look we take with our eyes in every moment of every day. So this leads to the third part. We've seen the commitment of most and the compromise of some in this church. Now we see the authority of Christ in verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon 
and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So one word is his main exhortation to this church, and it's repent. What, is, what does it mean to repent? Well, repent is a word that means to turn. It's about turning around. It's about having a new start. It's reorientation of the life. And repentance is a hard word, and it's a hopeful word. It's a hard word because it means we, we have to change the direction of our lives. We have to change where we're facing, the direction to which we're facing. It means we have to bring every aspect of our life under the authority and grace of Jesus and say, He can speak to anything that I do and think and feel and say. Any moment of any day, all of it I bring under the authority of Christ. And in any parts that are outside of this, I, bring, I repent by bringing back under His authority and grace and giving myself to Him. So it's a hard word. But it's also a hopeful word because it means that there's a future after repentance. Jesus is inviting people not just to turn around and get moral, but to turn around to him, to love him, to embrace him, to become like him. And Jesus is the one who satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. We were made for him. He's the one who holds eternal life and joy, and he, and he gives it to those who come to him. So now who needs to repent here in that church? Who has been compromising in that church? Well, apparently not everybody, just some. Jesus said there are some who hold to the teaching that leads to this compromise. So who does Jesus call to repent? Look at it closely. He seems like he's, it seems like he's addressing this call to repent to the whole church, not just the some who are holding to this teaching that's leading to compromise. Why would he do that? Well, because it's not just the minority who need to repent and abandon false teaching. It's the majority who need to and have needed to take responsibility to make that happen. So the church as a whole may be committed, the majority of them, but they're also complacent. They're allowing people membered in their church to embrace teaching that seems to grant them permission to compromise. So the committed majority have a responsibility to the compromising minority. Church members are responsible for one another. They're responsible to correct false teaching and ideas. They're responsible to gently call people to repentance and to be true to their confession in Christ. They're called to enter into a process of loving and patient discipline when necessary, calling one another to repent. So how do we do this today? Well, it means that we need to make sure that we are clear about how Jesus wants us to live. And that was part of the problem of this church in Pergamum. They weren't crystal clear on what Jesus expects of them and then wholeheartedly committed to that. So we need to be clear about what Jesus expects, which is going to take work, which means we have to be Bible people who know the Bible uh, from beginning to end. And we have to think through how Jesus calls us to live and how that's distinct from our cultural moment. Every church needs to do this. Every Christian needs to be able to do this. It means we need to be able to identify the pressures in our culture um, toward Christians, the pressures to compromise. We need to be sensitive to how the culture shapes us in ways we may not even be aware of by shaping our longings and, and feelings and assumptions about what's right and good and true and beautiful. And this happens through a number of things with 
use of media and a number of other things. We need to help one another live faithfully. We need to help one another honor Christ with our words, with how we use media in our sexuality. This also means that we need to be able to identify leaders, whether appointed or self-appointed, and teachers and authors who may be promoting the kind of teaching that was being promoted in the Church of Pergamum, who are trying to convince Christians that they can adjust away from what the Bible says, either by saying the Bible is culturally irrelevant today and we've moved beyond this, or by saying the Bible doesn't really say what it plainly says and what Christians throughout church history have seen it plainly to say. It means we need to be aware of Christians who are leading others to sanctify values that Jesus Christ does not honor. It means we need to see how some whole, gener- whole denominations have compromised morally in our day on moral issues, especially on marriage and sexuality and gender today. In previous generations in our country, this meant identifying those who tried to use the Bible to affirm slavery and segregation. In our generation, it means identifying those who try to use the Bible to endorse a vision of sexuality that the Bible doesn't affirm. So that's what it looks like today. Now, why do we need to do this? Well, ultimately, it's because of love. Because Jesus gives a warning here toward those who are compromising. It's not a warning from us. It's a warning from Christ to them that we're overhearing in verse 16. He says, if not, I will come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword of his mouth, symbolic for his words of judgment. So Jesus wants the committed in this church to repent of their complacency. And he wants the compromised to repent of their immorality. So who might you identify with in this church in Pergamum? If Jesus was writing a similar letter to us today, and as the Spirit speaks this letter to us today, who do you identify with? Is there some way in which the pressure of our culture has led you to compromise? even in a way that seems small to you? Have you affirmed what our culture affirms when you know that Jesus doesn't or when you've wondered if Jesus does or not and you haven't been committed enough to find out? Have you engaged in any form of sexual practice outside of this positive biblical vision of sexuality in the context of biblical marriage? Maybe you identify with the complacent. When a professing believer does what you know Jesus does not approve of, do you stay silent? Do you not seek to help them to know and to follow through with what Christ requires? Do you not think it's a big deal to Jesus? Do you think that you don't have a responsibility to speak in to other brothers and sisters' lives? And is this not first about speaking to the church Jesus isn't calling this church to speak to the culture in this text. This is about addressing those who bear the name of Christ, those who claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ who are compromising. He's calling the church to repent for their complacency about not being responsible and taking responsibility for one another's lives who bear the name of Christ. So this is about professing Christians. It's Jesus' first concern here. So those are hard questions. But they're the kinds of questions that Jesus' words here necessarily makes us ask. 
And in order to be honest about them, and in order to be honest with ourselves as we think about these questions, and in order to confront the realities of our own heart and practice, we need to hear Jesus' final part of his message. So fourth, the promise of identity. Verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So two images here. One is hidden manna, and two is a white stone with a name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, what do these mean? Well, I, it seems to me like their meaning is somewhat like the description. It's hidden and only known to the one, or the one who gives it. Nobody knows it otherwise. So this is the kind of verse we come to and say, here's uh, 13 options, uh, potential understandings of these, these verses here, and I have no idea. So, it is hard to be conclusive here. Uh, but a lot, a lot rides on this, doesn't it? Because this is the motivation we need to fulfill Jesus' command. I mean, I just said, if we're going to deal honestly with our own souls, if we're going to be honest about how we've been complacent or compromised, we need to hear what he says in this final part. And it seems so cryptic. So, what do we do? Well, I think we can get to the heart of it without understanding all the details. And it's important that we do. First, the hidden manna. Well, Jesus has already compared the church in the first century here with the people of God in the wilderness wanderings, people of Israel. And that's when they fell into their idolatry and immorality. And it's also where God fed them with manna, gave them bread from heaven to satisfy them, to provide for them, to sustain them. Jesus later in the Gospel of John says that he is the bread of life, the true bread of life who satisfies and sustains, provides for us from all that he is for us. So he's the true bread of life. We trust him and we're satisfied. God meets our needs. He satisfies the deepest longings of our souls. Jesus is promising that we do not need to look to our culture to give us the sustenance and the satisfaction we need. He will give us what we need. He promises to do for us what we can't do for ourselves and to satisfy us. So when we see that this is our future, as we fast forward through the book of Revelation to the end, we see that there's a wedding banquet, a feast for all God's people. As we fast forward to that day, we see that Jesus is going to be spreading a table before us. And so we can trust in him and look forward to that feast rather than participating in idolatrous feasts of our day, whatever form that may look like in terms of compromise. So second, a white stone with a new name. Well, white stones were used for various purposes in the first century. They were given to people with their name on it as a ticket to a feast or a celebration. White stones were also used in court to refer to acquittal. A black stone meant guilty, a white stone meant you are in the clear and you can go free. So either way, whether this is kind of like a ticket to a feast or the verdict of acquittal and freedom, the white stone in that culture referred to acceptance. It marked your acceptance, your welcome, your approval. It was your ticket to a feast or your doorway into a life of freedom. And this stone has a new name on it. The na a name refers to identity. It's who you are. It refers to who God sees you to be here. Elsewhere in Revelation, Christians are told that they will have the name of God put upon them. 
They'll be so closely identified with God that their identity is found in union with Him through Jesus. So God gives us a new identity as a son and daughter, as united to His Son Jesus. It's wrapped up in relationship with Him. So what does this all mean then? Well, even if we don't know precisely what this image refers to, we are able to get the overall sense then. Jesus is saying, I am offering to you an eternity of satisfaction and pleasure and an eternal welcome with a new identity. And this is exactly what the believers there needed to hear. It's exactly what you and I need to hear in order to not compromise with our culture in the ways that these people were. And I'm struck by this offer of identity, the statement of being given a new name, especially to a church that has one of its main problems with sexual immorality. Because in our culture, sexuality is intimately connected with identity. The big question that people are asking, especially younger generations, is this, who am I? What's my identity? Who am I truly? That's what we're looking for. And many are being told that we find our identity in our sexuality. We find our identity in what we feel and what attractions we have. But the Bible gives a different place to find our identity. Our sexual feelings and and attractions, those explain how we are. Those explain what we desire to do, but they do not tell us who we are. Jesus defines who we are. We're all made in His image. And those who trust in Christ are adopted into God's family and given a new name and union with Christ. So our sexual feelings, whether they fit with God's design or not, do not define who we are. And Jesus' words here then are deeply relevant to our time because, I mean, nobody's looking for manna, right? No one's longing for a stone. Uh, These metaphors do not relate to our culture today, but what they refer to is deeply relevant because they are looking for what these represent. They're looking for satisfaction. They're looking for identity. They're looking for acceptance. And Jesus is offering it to us here. He's offering this ticket in the new creation to come where satisfaction and identity in Christ can be found. And he does it because this is the motivation that his people are going to need to have in order to obey his commands in this message. They need to embrace this acceptance and identity in this hope for their future if they're going to stop compromising or being complacent. That's why this is here at the end. It's the motivation we need. It needs to function in our hearts. So, whether you are a Christian who has been compromising and you recognize the Spirit's convicting you of that this morning, or whether you're a Christian who has been complacent and not doing anything to help brothers or sisters who are compromising, or whether you're not yet a Christian and you're, you're hearing Jesus's moral ethic even for the first time in your life, the invitation is the same. It's repent and believe. Turn away from these false sources of satisfaction and identity and find it in Christ and trust in Him and come to Him for His approval and acceptance and welcome, one that you can only find in Him. So in our last moments, we'll sing a song in, in, a, in just a minute, but before that, I just want to ask him one more question. How does this message that Jesus gives help us as Christians think about our posture toward the culture? It's a question that we started with. How do we relate to the culture around us? What do we do in the midst of a moral revolution? 
What do we do as this revolution and change continues to continue indefinitely into our future? What do we do when we feel more and more pressure to conform? Well, there's four options. Four options for how we as a church can think of our posture toward the culture. And three of them are wrong and not fitting according to this text. One of them fits with this text. So first, we can leave the culture. We can completely withdraw from it. We can escape the culture. But notice, the Christians in Pergamum lived where Satan dwelled, and Jesus doesn't tell them to get out. I mean, if there's ever a location, if Jesus is going to say, get out of there, it's there. We got nothing. He doesn't tell them to leave. We don't retreat from culture. Second, we can conform to the culture. But of course, this is the problem that Jesus is addressing with this. So we do not accommodate to our culture in ways that compromise our faithfulness to Christ, which means we will look increasingly odd and strange to our culture. We won't look at certain images. We won't laugh at certain jokes. We won't see certain movies. We won't engage in certain activities. Third, we can combat culture. But Jesus doesn't tell the church to make war on culture here. The only one who's making war in this text is Jesus, and he's doing it against professing Christians who are compromising. So if we don't leave the culture or conform to the culture or combat the culture, what's left? We engage the culture with conviction and compassion. We stay and we engage. We create a counterculture of joy, and peace and conformity to Christ, and then we swing our doors wide open to anyone who wants to come and find Christ. And we engage with people with conviction and compassion. Conviction, not conformity, and compassion rather than being combative. Truth and love. So, let's pray, and then we'll sing in response to this. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this word. We want to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to his churches, and so we want to receive this today. We pray that the words in this text would linger in our hearts and minds as we leave today. They'd come back to our minds and hearts this week to bring fresh renewal and repentance and joy where needed, and we pray that we would find our identity through union with Christ by the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.